Hello, my name is David Martinez, and today we're going to talk about how to avoid being the ugly American traveler. There is a phenomenon when I was traveling in Europe many years ago. Uh, American travelers, travelers from the United States, putting Canadian patches on their backpacks. And part of it had to do with this reputation that Americans have. There's this classic ugly American traveler. Do you, have, do you ever, have you ever come across this? Absolutely. Uh, sometimes it's fair and sometimes it's un, an unfair um, thing that's leveled at American travelers. And it's actually, it goes back further than both of our travel careers. Um, it was very big during the Vietnam War, which was an unpopular war. And so... Um, as I was writing my new book, The Vagabond's Way, I realized that there's actually a Wikipedia entry about this. It's called flagjacking. Flagjacking. And Americans like sort of putting Canadian flags on their packs, even though they're not Canadian, is the most obvious examples. But there's there's other kinds of flagjacking. But it, it, it sort of ties into, I guess, Americans have a bad reputation, again, sometimes earned and sometimes not very well earned. And so instead of just being a better American, people are to pretend to be Canadian. And I'm of the opinion, like, just own your actual identity. And if some people are being ugly Americans, because that's a very common phrase, then be a beautiful American. Um, and we can dig into a little bit about why this um, might be a thing. I think part of the reason why Americans are seen as a little bit more obnoxious than other tourists is America is so big, we can travel for three days and never leave the United States. We have less international instincts. We tend to be a little bit loud and pushy. We're sort of a customer culture. And so we can dig into all the, the iterations of why there are ugly Americans. But don't you have a story from the time you were in Spain? I do, yeah. I, I love I love the story because, it, it again, we're stereotyping. Not all, We have, you know, this is what we always have to say, right? Not all travelers are like this. But there is a reputation. Americans do have a reputation abroad. I talk to students often about this reputation, the different... Um, characteristics of this traveler, loud, as you said, loud. Uh, they often don't uh, make any effort in learning the language. And I, I, this is very frustrating as a language instructor. I, I always encourage anybody who travels to learn a little bit. And there's something stereotypical about the American who is just afraid of trying to speak in a foreign language. I don't know if the, you know, they're afraid of being made fun of, they're afraid of not getting it right, etc. But yeah, I was, I was about, I don't know, maybe 13, 14 years old. And I was in line, I think it was a McDonald's in Madrid. And at the front of the line, there was this classic uh, older gentleman, you know, with the shorts and the fanny pack and the, you know, the, the classic touristy shirt. And he was just screaming, yelling at this at this worker, he didn't speak any Spanish, you know, this is in the 90s. And so um, fewer people in Spain spoke English. Now it, it would it'd be a lot more common to have this this worker speak English. But at the time, there was just a, a, a language barrier there. And the, the impression is always if I speak louder, somehow that's going to break this language barrier. And my father was there and he went to, to the front of the line and kind of translated for for um, for this for this gentleman. And I thought about that often because Again, th there are certain things, ways in which you behave abroad. I, I have a theory about why uh, this is this has happened or this has occurred. Tell me what you think about this. I think that the in the United States we are a little bit coddled 
in the sense that think, think about a restaurant experience. You go to a restaurant now and you order a steak and they ask you how you want it cooked, what temperature, what cut, what side do you want with it? There's all these options. How much ice do you want in your glass? You know, free refills. Uh, think about when you travel or when you, um, when you go shopping, the customer's always right. You can return things. My wife still is floored. My wife who's, was born in Spain and uh, she's German. Uh, she's, we've been living in the U.S. for together for I don't know how long, maybe 10 years or so. And uh, she's still floored by some of these customs, the fact that you can return an item 30 days later. And so when you grow up with, with this kind of treatment, it can be difficult to go to a foreign country and not get the free refills, not get the ice and the drink, not get to decide how your steak is cooked. And, you know, one, one of my favorite uh, things to do with students when I take them to Spain is to go to the restaurant and we sit around and I kind of wait to see how they're going to react to the waiter, the server, who doesn't come every, you know, every three and a half minutes to make sure your water is refilled, to make sure everything's okay. And always the classic joke at the end when they're done eating, they make this joke every single year and, and they say, well, I guess they don't want us to pay for the meal because the, the server isn't coming to give you the check. It's not like in the U.S. where it's like you got to hurry up, you know, you got to hurry up and eat and get out of here so that we can fill the seat or you also, I'm sure, are very busy. Right. Um, so I think those are that's my theory uh, as to why uh, the American, the ugly American traveler has come to be. What do you think? Am I onto something or no? Oh, you're definitely onto something. <laughs> and I, I think it's tied into the, the hyper individualism of American culture. You know, the idea that the customer is always right, or the, actually the customer should be the expert on how they eat. In France, there's more the, the metier, the idea that your profession affords you an expertise, which makes sense. And so the, the French waiter, I know less about Spain, they know they've been in the kitchen. They know what cuts of meat are good. They know how things are prepared. At the end of the day, they're actually trying to help you because they know exactly what the food is like behind there. And they know what customers have responded to before, even American customers. And so just the idea that this um, uh, waiter should be this obsequious person who's hovering around keeping your glass full is not a very French way of thinking. In a way, there's more pleasure in, in saying, in asking the waiter, oh, well, what's, what's good today? What, what do you recommend? And then have him bring it out and leave you alone, you know, for the entirety of your meal. Oftentimes my students, I teach a writing class in Paris every summer, they'll they'll get frustrated because the waiters aren't bringing their bill after 20 minutes. And it's like, I want to experience Paris. I want to go out and see this museum or whatever. And it's like, actually, it's more Parisian to sit for lunch for three hours and enjoy your friends and look at the street than to rush off to the 10 points on your bucket list for Paris. And so I think it is, it is a cultural thing. Americans are, are sort of inculcated. There's advantages to having a, a, a customer, a consumer culture, but at the end of the day, overseas, you learn a lot about a place by the pace of the restaurant. And actually oftentimes the food is pretty good. You know, like when I eat a cherry in Paris in July, I know that those cherries were probably hanging on a tree the week before, not that far from Paris. They weren't shipped in from Chile or wherever it is, you know, where, where when we go to a grocery store in the United States. And so that's part of, I guess, the culture shock of experience in another place is just knowing that things are done differently in these places. I think tying into something you said earlier, I think sometimes you go to a place like Latin America, well, we're used to, pe to Latin Americans in the service industry in North America, and they've learned enough English to help us. But 
screaming at somebody in English in Costa Rica is not going to win you any friends or help you be understood. I think oftentimes th this is literally a language issue that it doesn't take that much of language study to create goodwill. My French is terrible. I've been going there for years. But if you just say, bonjour, monsieur, you know, yeah. they understand that you didn't say that very fluently, but you're trying and it's a courtesy. Um, and yeah, you don't just, if somebody in the United States, in, in New York came up and, and screamed in Swahili, where does this bus go? The driver wouldn't have any patience for them. Well, right. just imagine how ridiculous Americans are sort of taking the entitlement of customer culture to other countries that don't have it and don't speak the language. And so it's a giant can of worms. And I think for listeners, the idea might just, you know, lead with, with humility and listen more than assume right. uh, and be curious. And if you're the only person in the restaurant screaming at the waiter, probably you're the one person who's in the wrong, you know? It, it's not that hard to look around and see what the cultural norms are. Yeah, it's so great to hear you say that. I often talk about, because France has this reputation, speaking of, of stereotypes, I often hear people say, in, in France, they hate it when you try to speak French, and if you don't get it perfectly, they get mad at you and angry, and that has not been my experience. Uh, and I, I often say, you know, the person who gets mad at you for trying to speak a language is going to get mad at you for a lot of other reasons. They're just an unhappy person and has nothing to do with your with your language speaking abilities or your attempt at speaking a language. Uh, everywhere I go, I try to learn a little bit of the language. When I went to Ethiopia, my phrase was, uh, hello, how are you always, right? And so forth. But then I also learned how to say, stay away from her, she's my wife. And that was my <laughs> sense of humor. And so we're traveling around Ethiopia and I was, you know, hey, how are you? And we weren't even married at the time. I actually proposed to her in Ethiopia, but I, I would say, hey, stay away from her. She's my wife. And they'd always start laughing. And and it was just such a way to enter the culture, to get to know people, to talk to them. That's my sense of humor. In Vietnam, same thing. I learned, well, not the same thing. I learned, I tried to learn how to say, hello, how are you? Never got it right. Three weeks, never got it right. They never understood what I said, but they could see that I was trying. Vietnamese is a very difficult language, seven tones. Mm. Um, and again, and again, same thing there was, there was, I, I could see from them an appreciation of me trying and attempting. And, and this is what I encourage students and any, any traveler to do, try to learn a couple phrases. It's going to, it's going to be good. Yeah. I, I think this is one thing that is intimidating to first time travelers. And it's something that, that I overcame by being a language teacher in Korea for a couple of years, just realizing that. Language volume isn't going to help, but slowing down, being very clear, realizing that some people only know English from a textbook and they're not used to your Midwestern accent or whatever. Actually, the Midwestern accent is pretty clear. But um, just I think sometimes there, people are intimidated because they think that if they don't have enough Spanish or Swahili or you know Mandarin Chinese, then they're going to fail as travelers. When in fact, actually, people are friendly all over the world. Yeah. Um, and people have patience, especially if it's like, you just come up and say, hello, sir, I don't speak much of your language. And then like, if somebody said that to you in English, you'd be charmed, right? And then you would help them find a place to eat or find a place to stay or play a game in the town square or something. And so I think a little bit of effort goes a long way yeah. and just being patient, listening. And again, if somebody is polite enough to try and speak English with you, just slow down and be very clear and very simple with your English because in a way you're just trying to communicate, which goes more than, fluency doesn't matter when communication is the um, is the goal because there's many ways you can communicate oftentimes through hand gestures and stuff, that a combination of linguistic and, and uh, non-linguistic um, 
gestures can help you be understood. And it's a fun thing to happen as yeah. a traveler. It's a reputation that, that Americans have. Uh, there's a joke that you've told before about what, what, what do you call somebody who speaks two languages? Bilingual. You, that? you told yeah, this yeah. joke. Yeah, so, yeah. Do you want to tell the joke? Well, what do you, well you started it. So what do you call a person uh, who speaks three languages? Trilingual. What do you call a person who only speaks one language? An American. An American, yeah. yeah. So I, I, again, I, I can't, I can't stress that enough. Try to learn some of the language. What are some other ways that we can avoid being this ugly American traveler? We talked about language. We talked about some flexibility, humility. I think slowing down. I think sometimes that same consumer mindset that makes us think we are entitled to this many refills of our glass of water also makes us think that our travels are of higher quality if we do more. And so when you're rushing to 10 places in a two-day trip, <laughs> then you're sort of like a ghost to local people. You're just this person who's trying to tick things off a list and you're not really listening and you're not really being that respectful, not because of bad intentions, but just because you're moving too quickly to really make a genuine connection. So I guess I use two days as an example, stay in one place for two days, yeah. sit still, let things happen. See who takes an interest in you. Oftentimes we go to a place and it's like, oh, this person looks interesting because they're wearing what I think a traditional costume is in Argentina or whatever. Um, oftentimes the person who looks traditionally Argentinian is there in the tourist matrix because yes. people are looking for that person. When in fact the person who approaches you, be it a teenager who wants to practice their English or an old person who used to be in the merchant Marines and wants to practice their English, or the middle-aged person who watches American movies and thinks it's cool that there's actually an American there. That's when things get interesting and that's something you can't plan for. Mm -hmm. And so I think if you can plan, if you can slow down and plan to just give yourself unoccupied time where things can happen to you instead of you trying to force things happening, I think that's when you can move past that ugly American who's in a rush to get this mountaintop experience and not really paying attention. Yeah, that, that ties into something I often uh, talk about, which is, uh, and again, we're stereotyping, but there is a, often a sense that Americans need to be the center of attention. Hmm. And so I often encourage uh, travelers to try to avoid that impulse to come into a restaurant or come into a circle of people and need to be the one who kind of uh, leads everybody or is in charge, or now we're gonna go do this, as you say, right? We're gonna do this and this and this and that, and, and we're gonna get everything done. If you can try to step out of that role I think that would also help with this, this ugly American traveler that we're trying to, to avoid. I think sometimes uh, you can be an ugly American by trying too hard to not be an ugly American. That's like I, I've met a lot of Americans who are just like, oh, well, listen to me. Like I didn't vote for this candidate who's not popular here. And I don't really believe in this. And it's like, well, you're an American who's talking a lot, you know, that even though you're sort of trying not to be the stereotype that you think that the ugly American is, you're still sort of being this noisy, bossy person who's talking more than listening. And at the end of the day, most people probably don't care that much about your politics or what candidates you voted for, or what your opinion is about this or that hot button topic, but they would sort of like you to, to listen to them, you know, or I, I think this is one thing that we forget sometimes, especially in, in the world of social media, which is a whole other can of worms to talk about. <laughs> Just the idea that we're supposed to have our opinions about everything, when in fact, where's a good place to eat in this town? Um, what do kids do for fun? What do adults do for fun? Is there a church service or a festival or where's the mosque? Or, I mean, there's just so many quotidian things that structure people's lives in ways that political opinions or matter, broad matters of culture don't. And I think 
what we share as humans is often that soccer game or that worship service or that um, interest in art or other things that have nothing to do with what we think defines an uglier American as opposed to a beautiful American. I think just sometimes ingratiating yourselves and having fun, um, low stakes conversations is part of the fun. Yeah. That's, you bring up the, the beautiful American traveler, which I guess, you know, you could say is the opposite of everything we've been talking about, learning the language, being humble and so forth. Are there other characteristics of a beautiful American traveler? Um, besides going slow and listening, I think, yeah, I, I think learning about cultural norms, because I think culture is often the water we swim in to the extent that it doesn't occur to us that people wouldn't be an individualist. This is something I learned in Korea. Um, that we're so naturally individualistic as Americans that we forget that Koreans sort of see individualism, not just Koreans, but other people in other cultures, they see it as a betrayal of the collective that involves family, that involves community. And uh, once you realize the logic behind that, it makes a lot of sense, but you don't, you can read about it, but experiencing it is something different. And so I think being willing to make mistakes, but not in an obnoxious way, um, and, and realize that sometimes your mistakes are, are going to be against your better intentions. Like once I asked my landlady in Korea, Nokcha Mashile, would you like some tea? Well, I used the wrong verb ending. We don't have the same verb endings. And so I addressed her like a child, which is very insulting in Korean. And so I made that mistake and I just rolling with the punches and apologizing and realizing not to do it the next time was part of the process. So I think nobody, and again, social media reinforces this idea that you can be perfect. You can walk in and have all the right phrases and say the right things and get this, the perfect picture against the sunset when at the end of the day, humans have always made mistakes. And you know, as long as you're not being a jerk about it, people will forgive you by using, you know, for occasionally using the wrong verb ending because it's an imperfect world. Yeah, that takes, and it takes some humility to do that because you have to, you have to put yourself out there, make the mistake and then have the ability to reflect, to learn, to adapt right? And to, and to move on. Yeah. Yeah. No. So, so I think that being a beautiful American involves occasional mistakes and, and, and owning those mistakes and learning from them and really realizing that, that culture is, is a thing. You know, if you're a woman and you're in Egypt and you, it feels like you're being harassed, maybe it's not because men are horrible, but you're wearing a tank top and Egyptian women don't wear tank tops and right. the culture that you swim in, you're, it would be like walking around in a bikini, you know, in downtown Portland, Oregon or something. It's like, it's just not done. And uh, so there's a lot of, there's like 10,000 examples like that about how what is seen as normal on the street in the United States is not necessarily normal in other places, including our French restaurant example. You know, it's not a, it's not a fast churn people out of the restaurant culture. And in a way it's, it's kind of beautiful that you can have a really slow lunch in a place like France or Spain or Italy. Yeah. I talk about dress code often with my students and this is, this goes against the stereotype uh, that's ugly um, American traveler because often they want to know how they can dress to fit in. And, and I appreciate that. And I, and I love that sentiment. Uh, and so when we go to Spain and they, they talk about what, you know, what should I wear? What should I not wear? It's not very common for men to wear shorts. And that's, that's often, you know, one of the first things to go, which is they're going to try to wear long pants, but it's hot in the Southern part of Spain. And uh, but there's also a sense of, like, as you say, arriving at the country, looking around, observe, see what, you know, see what other uh, people their age are wearing or doing, and you kind of try to follow suit. You're still going to, you're, you're going to be recognized or uh, noticed. You're different. There's, there's a way that you walk. There's a way that you, you know, move your hands and so forth. You're going to know that you're a foreigner, but 
there is also an appreciation of an attempt to fit in, which is what we've been talking about from the beginning. And I love that. I love that sentiment. Going back to the to the comfort, though, there's a great book that I that I recommend to my students. It's called The Comfort Crisis by Michael Easter. Uh, and he, he talks about this push or this need to be comfortable all of the time. And he talks about how comfort doesn't equal happiness. And uh, so it's it's a great book full of the tons of research and nuggets of knowledge and wisdom. One of the things he talks about is a, a Japanese concept, misogi, where you're supposed to challenge yourself. You're supposed to try something very difficult, uh, something that you have a 50% chance of failing at, hmm. which can be, it can be a little jarring to, to try something where you might fail. There's a 50% chance that you might fail. The only two rules in a misogi are, number one, it's got to be hard. And number two, don't die. Those are the only two rules. And uh, so I, I encourage students to read this book before they travel so that they can get into this mode of, I'm going to be uncomfortable. It's possible that I'm going to be in situations or moments in which I'm not going to know exactly how to act. Uh, maybe the bed is uncomfortable. I might not get a free refill, you know, heaven forbid, there's varying degrees of, of discomfort. Uh, but it's also just a good reminder that you can put up with things. You can you can overcome these um, these difficult, you know, quote unquote, uncomfortable situations. And I think, or part of my goal, is that little by little we're going to change this reputation that Americans have abroad. That over the years, eventually, uh, the ugly American stereotype is going to disappear. I have I have a lot of faith and hope that that that, that could happen. I do too. And I think often it's not fair. Like sometimes if Americans are noisy, it's because Americans tend to travel in big groups. And if you get a big group of Brazilians or Israelis or other countries, then they're going to be noisy too. Right. And so I think it's often unfair. Like the, the people who've most read, readily uh, leveled ugly American stereotypes at me are not the Egyptians or Thais or Namibians that I'm traveling with. It's usually Brits, you know, who like yes. to distinguish themselves from Americans uh, in, in a moral way, not, not to dig on Brits too much, but I just, I got more barbs about being an American, not from the host cultures I was in, but from other travelers who <laughs> wanted to distinguish themselves as slightly superior uh, because they weren't acting in the same manner as me. I think oftentimes like there's a stereotype that, that Americans are a little boorish and rude, but studies have shown that Americans tip better yeah. than your average European does. And often at the end of the day, when the tourists have gone home, it's easy to think, well, this guy said something polite and this guy was not as polite, but this guy tipped me $5 and that is gonna feed my family this week. That there's other ways, I'm not saying to throw money at every solution, <laughs> but I think a lot of stereotypes that are leveled in Americans overlook the fact that Americans can be quite generous and gregarious and fun and I think especially as a first time traveler, just remember to just ease your way into travel and remember that you're not entitled to anything and that it's a privilege to be able to be in another place and to just be a student of the place before you become a swaggering declarative expert of the place. Yeah, the tipping culture is interesting because here you do tip, right? 15, 20% or, mm -hmm. or beyond. And in Europe, it's not common. You leave a couple of whatever coins you have in your in your pocket, you just kind of throw. And it's, it's difficult for Americans to do that. They feel in their in their heart in their gut that they are wronging the institution somehow or wronging the server and it's yeah, it takes it takes a it takes a while to to get them used to the new tipping but you're right uh, the the servers and the restaurant owners they love Americans especially the the new ones who who arrive and have no idea this new, this uh, the tipping culture 
Yeah. And that that reverses, I'm thinking of other ugly other cultures that oftentimes, if you have any friends who are a waiter or a waitress, they dread that table of Germans who isn't used to tipping culture yet, or, you know, whatever European country, and that they think 10% is this grand yeah. gesture when in fact, yeah, some of, some of the biggest tippers I've known in America are people without a lot of money, but they've worked as wait staff before and they know how much it's appreciated. Yeah. So that's, that reminds me, I was in eating at a restaurant in Tennessee somewhere and my, my friend's wife is Peruvian and her brother was visiting from Peru and we're having this nice meal and he wanted to pay for the meal. This was his way of appreciating, you know, saying thank you for hosting me and so forth. I'd like to pay for this meal. He said, sure. Okay. I didn't think anything of it. He pays, we walk out the door and the server comes running out and throws a handful of change at us, just okay. like launches it at us. Right. And, you know, it starts yelling at us, berating us. And, and the Peruvian is looking around like, I don't know what, what's happening, what is happening? And what had happened is he had tipped 5% or just left right. a couple of coins. Yeah. And the meal was, I mean, it was, it was quite expensive. So yeah, you're right. There's this reverse, you yeah. know, uh, uh, adapting to culture. But at the same time, I think there were a lot of lessons to be learned in that. The Peruvian could have learned about the culture in the United States. Their server could have recognized that this person was not from this country. There could have been a conversation, right? That didn't happen that way. And, 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 and th those are the stories that then get ingrained in your mind, right? The Peruvians are a certain way. This is my one experience with a Peruvian. Mm, and now mm. I believe that all Peruvians are this way or, or vice versa. Well, that's why I think instead of flagjacking, just owning your identity and being the best American you can be is good. And, and just every time I hear a story, I think of something else. Like I know that um, uh, church tours became popular in Harlem because of the gospel singers and stuff. But then like bus, so many busloads of, of Germans and French people just sort of sitting in, in a church as if it's another tourist attraction and um, sort of not paying the respect that is due a religious service. Well, that becomes stereotyping too. And so I'm sure there's people in Harlem who just are tired of another busload of Germans coming to the gospel service be, for the music, but they don't necessarily aren't gonna respect any spiritual texture of the, of the service. And so I think that it's, the phrase is ugly American and it's ugly American for a reason, but that doesn't absolve any other culture right. from being insensitive in ways that they might not understand. And tipping is a great example because it's so ingrained in certain, even inequities of how we decide to pay our servers in the United States yeah. that um, culturally some people just don't understand it. And it's not until they meet, until they get change thrown at them <laughs> or until they meet a waiter who says, yeah, actually I paid my way through college because of the generosity of people who were eating meals. And at the end of the day, it didn't cost them that much more, but it meant a lot to me. You know, my wife is an actress and she's waited tables plenty of times and that those big tips meant a lot to her. And so that is a cross-cultural um, as much as anything. So I guess we've sort of segue this into from an ugly American to just an ugly traveler thing. Yes. There's different ways to misunderstand a place often by accident, you know, because pe oftentimes people aren't trained in American tipping culture, just like they aren't trained to say, look, you know, when you're in a Muslim country, there's very specific things you should do. You should take your shoes off in the mosque, blah, 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 blah. And so I think it is maybe even doing your homework. This is another way to avoid being the ugly American, just knowing what the cultural norms are in a place, knowing what is polite and what is not polite. Gosh, it goes a long way to just yeah. have a little bit of knowledge. Yeah, and there are two, as you say, there, there, there is this reality of an ugly American traveler that exists. And so be aware of that when you travel, you are carrying this burden, quote unquote burden, unfairly or fairly, that doesn't really matter at this point, but it exists and it's there. Uh, but it also, as you say, it's, it's any, any traveler, we talk, I talk about this a lot when we, 
when we go to certain countries where you have to be careful what you wear, you know, like exposing shoulders and so forth. And we get in this conversation about, you know, I, you know, I'm an independent person. I should be able to wear this without having people gawk at me and so forth. And you know, maybe there's an element of truth to that, but it doesn't take away from a reality of you growing up in a specific culture that allowed you to become this very independent person. Uh, and you are entering into a different culture, uh, a different history that hasn't had that. And so I think in that case, uh, within certain boundaries and without getting too political here, uh, you are the one who you have to adapt to that culture, as you say, to you know learn about the culture before you go and recognize, realize that this is a privilege. And so, I don't know, change a little bit, you know, adjust your wardrobe a little bit, take your shoes off, even if that does make you uncomfortable. Or, or respect certain hierarchies that we no longer do in the United States. I mean, oftentimes you were so individualist that if a kid comes up and asks for candy in a place, you either say yes or no to the kid. You don't ask where the parent is, you know. In so many countries, you don't you don't address a kid as, as an equal person of agency that, you know, that basically um, in certain societies, I'm thinking of Asian ones or maybe even Latin American societies, that it's that it's weird, and and this can be this. There's an economics to this too. You know that if if a kid asks you for a dollar and you give it to him, well, if his dad is working in a mine and a dollar is half a day's wage, then you you've sort of broken down the hierarchy and the respect that that person might have for their father. And so, again, that it's oftentimes it's it's by a mistake. It's just an assumption that you're air quotes helping, <laughs> when in fact no, actually you sort of you threw off the hierarchy of how things work in this village because a kid for being cute gets a dollar for five seconds of his time when his dad is farming all day and is is just saving his dollars as much as he can. And so I guess this is this is the can of worms that intimidate people about travel because you don't want to do things wrong. Right. But I think just sort of going slow and paying attention and, and adjusting accordingly counts for a lot. You're not going to ruin a village economy <laughs> by giving a kid a dollar, but um, it's good to know that you can't do that all the time. Right. And you can reflect on your actions as well. I think mm -hmm. there was one time we were traveling, uh, I don't remember where exactly, but we were handing out candy uh, and, and the best of intentions, I think it was Ethiopia. Um Best of intentions, you know, we, we've, there are kids walking up and we're handing candy. And then we were towards the end of the trip. Somebody said, you know, why are you giving candy? There, there, there aren't that many dentists around here. Mm. You're ruining their teeth and, mm. you know, and so forth. And we're like, oh my goodness, we were just trying to make the kid happy, you know? Mm. And, and so I can, uh, there are two choices. One, I can beat myself up and I'm the worst traveler ever. And I'm never going to leave ever again because I can never do anything wrong. Or I can learn from that. And then when I was in Burma and Myanmar some years later, we bought um, some books from a, from a local nonprofit. And, that, and during our travels, we stopped at various schools and we we're handing out books. And that felt like we're not ruining mm -hmm. anybody's teeth at this point. And right. we're, you know, we're giving right. them, you know, and I'm sure there's a critique, like, what if they don't know how to read? I mean, there's always going to be some reason not to, not to participate in the culture. But uh, I think the important thing here is to, again, humility, ability to learn and, and adapt and, and continue to travel. Well, actually, I have another example if we have time. Do we have time to yeah, go some other examples? Yeah. Yes. Well, just thinking about the reason that we that travelers give candy to kids is that you get a reaction, and they're happy, and they love candy. Everybody loves candy. Um, this also happens in volunteer and mission-type situations. Well, you'll have a traveler go, and often it's young travelers. You'll teach English for a couple of days in a classroom. You get a bunch of pictures with the kids in the classroom, 
And then those are the pictures you show to your friends back home. Oh, look at these villagers in Kenya that I, I taught English. Do you know the name of that kid? You know, do yeah. you do you know what their father does for a living? If this was an orphanage, are you sure they're an orphanage? Because there's actually a volunteerism industrial complex, and there, books have been written about this that they it incentivizes people to have the kids looking poor and yeah. disadvantaged because. At the end of the day, the person who only has three days to spare on their mission trip, they want a picture of a poor, them with a poor looking African, as opposed to spending a year, spending five years, actually being trained as a teacher, actually being trained as a doctor and spending time there. And so I think one thing that we should push back against as Americans is that superficial loop often it's social media driven now of saying, look at me, I'm a good person, I'm a good Christian, I here I am with these poor kids in this country X, when in fact, sometimes you're doing a disservice because you're not really affecting any change at all. It's about you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oftentimes uh, on volunteer mission trips, it's about the story that we tell about ourselves when we come home, as opposed to the long-term longevity, six months, six years, 60 years of this community. How are you giving back to that? And so it popped in my head when you're talking about candy because there's there's a million ways that good intentions can yield mediocre to bad results, particularly if part of your motivation is to be seen as a good person who is getting a smile from a kid, when in fact, it's much more complicated everywhere in the yeah. world. Yeah, so what, what, is the, what is the piece of advice? And as we're I'm glad you tied that in because I think that also plays into this this ugly American traveler. I talk often with students how it's it's surprising to me, or it's I'm not sure what the word is. Disappointing, not necessarily disappointing, but I I find it interesting that many Americans, and particularly Christian Americans, they have a hard time traveling uh, unless they're traveling mm. to do good, mm. unless they're you know on a missions trip, or they're or you know they have to give of their time somehow. Uh, and I think it comes from a good place. They they feel like a lot has been given to them and they want to give back. And this is their way of traveling. And I often insist you should travel. I mean, traveling, you know, staying in the hotels, uh, going on these adventures and and paying for, you know, buying food on the street and so forth. You are you are giving to the economy, right? Local economies and, and, and of, of these countries. And, and that's enough. Uh, to go with this idea that I'm going to give back somehow, or and this justifies my trip, I think that yeah, that plays into a lot of what of what we're saying. So what's the what's the advice then? Um, consider what your motivation is, maybe because here's the other thing. After the candy incident, that's ingrained in my mind. And then we, when I was in the Philippines, we went around. Um, you know, after doing our our uh, swimming with whale sharks and so forth, we walked around town and we had balloons that we were handing out and blowing mm -hmm. up the balloons. Mm -hmm. And we just had a great time, you know, blowing them up, tying them and then tossing them around. And the kids were the same thing. They were laughing. We had a great time playing this game with the, with the um, chanclas. How do you say chanclas in English? Chanclas. <laughs> the beach, the beach um, slippers or what do you, I can't think of the word in English. Um, what do you wear yeah. when you go to the beach? Oh, flip flops. Flip flops. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they have this game where they put like two or three flip flops up, and then you, with another flip flop, you launch it, and and uh, I don't know, it was it was great. Um, anyway, I'm not sure how that tied in, but <laughs> it made me think of that. Well, one thing I was thinking about this, you know, at a Christian college like this, there's sort of this compulsion to go and do something, to do God's work or to give back in some way. I've spoken at non-Christian schools where students, I mean. 
we give the young a hard time. I found that that young travelers are often more idealistic and more give back oriented than their adult contemporaries, but this doesn't always mean that they're good travelers, right? Um, I taught at Yale for a while and the students are always like, well, I can get a fellowship, I can get this special funding and do this thing for the State Department. It's like, go to a country and order a meal and make a friend and make out with a girl or a boy and, you know, and just enjoy yourself for a while. Because oftentimes if we're too structured about our ideas of giving back, we're basically giving back to communities that we don't even know yet, you know? And I think, Oftentimes, if you go to a, a foreign country to have fun, if you're a person with a good core, after a few days, the dumb fun stuff that is only done in contrast to the workaday life, sitting on the beach and, and having a drink, eventually that's gonna get boring and, and you're gonna wanna do something interesting and learn something about the place. And so I've told students oftentimes, don't be afraid to travel for fun. It's not yes. a bad thing to enjoy yourself. And I mean, sure, if you're, going to the party hostel and it's your sixth month there and and you don't know anybody's name, then that's probably a bad way to have fun. But just going out and having meals with strangers and learning about things and playing soccer in the town square and just being frivolous for a while, just because it's often through frivolity that we get to know places in a more intimate way. Because the people who live in that place you know, even if they're disadvantaged compared to us, at the end of the day, like, they like to have fun. They like to laugh and play games and have food and and if the food is delicious, they might show you how it's cooked. You know, there's, yeah. there's a million different ways through which enjoyment of a place can lead to a more serious change. And oftentimes it's, it's the place that you like that you go back to. I, and, and I've done this before, not in, in big ways, but I meet communities that might have certain needs and it is through just having fun with people that eventually I might, um, I went to Cuba. I know that you have a connection to Cuba. I've yeah. uh, my, had some friends there. And so I found some used laptop computers. And when my friend Liz went there, I sent her with some computers and they weren't good computers by US standards, but they were very much welcome in, in, in Cuba. And I didn't go there um, on a air quotes mission trip. I just went there and made friends and suddenly I knew what they lacked, that how I could help them. Mm -hmm. So I think that you don't necessarily need a formal air quotes, mission trip to do good work in a place yeah. or to make meaningful connections. Um, yeah, I guess I guess one thing I often come back to as a person who advises travel is just know that after a few days in a new place, you'll be so much smarter than you will be when you were planning that trip. And so you could plan this super mission trip or volunteerism trip or this 20 cathedrals in one week tour of Europe, but at the end of the day, you're gonna be so much smarter when you show up. Yeah. And so I think one fear that we often have is that ignorance of being, of getting lost or making mistakes when it, when really that is the the open door into a place is right. that discomfort that you feel as a traveler. Yeah, or the, the time constraint. You know, you have you have one week, this is your one chance, your one shot of being here, you gotta do it all. When in reality, those these cathedrals you're going to see, they're beautiful. I mean, Sagrada Familia is quite nice and so forth. But but the meaningful stories and are going to be the people that you've met. And if and so, when you're talking about preparing a trip. I think part of the way you can you can get away from this ugly American, as we're talking about the stereotype, is to carve out some space to let the trip happen to you. You often you often say that, right? Mm -hmm. Let the trip happen to you, and that can be a little bit. It's, it can be difficult because you need to fill up your time. You need to, you need to, this is what I, this is the time I have. I need to do everything as opposed to here's a day where I have nothing to do. So yeah. I'm going to walk around the street. I'm going to go to a cafe. I'm going to sit there for more than 30 minutes, Yeah, <laughs> heaven forbid, and, and just see who comes in and see what kind of, what conversations I can, I can strike up.
Yeah, let 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 your day breathe. I think these days, more so than ever, we really owe it to ourselves to plan some unstructured time in a foreign place because we can over plan our lives. You know, there's an app for everything now, yeah. uh, and in a way, um, ideas of time efficiency sometimes rob us of our time wealth. And time wealth is a phrase I use a lot. You know, just the idea that the days that you're given in life are the wealth that you have. And a lot of materially rich people have unhappy lives because they haven't thought about how to spend their time. And so sometimes if we over plan that day on the other side of the world, we're robbing ourselves of the very cool experience of sitting at the edge of the village square with our coffee and just sort of watching the day play out or going through a walk through a neighborhood that we're not necessarily familiar with. And if we get lost, we'll just ask the guy, you know, Pardon me. Do you speak a little bit of English? This is this is where I'm staying. How do I get back there? And that those are the those open the doors to an to a place that no amount of planning and no app that anyone will ever design can, because it's how humans have always related to each other. Yeah. And humans are pretty good to each other. At the end of the day, there's a few hustlers who are out there who want the money in your pocket. But at the end of the day, especially uh, ironically enough, outside of tourist zones, people are really curious uh, about who you might be. Yeah, a book that uh, I often recommend in this context is Bill Bryson's Neither Here Nor There, which is sort of the chronicles of his young travels across Europe. And it's full of these sort of mistakes that he recounts in a very humorous way. Bill Bryson is a great humorist. He is funny, yeah. But I think um, it makes you realize that everybody, Bill Bryson and all people, go into the world as travelers not being perfect. And making them those mistakes in a humble way uh, is a great way to learn more about the world. And so that's a fun book. Yeah, that's a great recommendation because he's kind of well-known as well-traveled and very experienced traveler. And so to read something, an account of him making mistakes should at the very least encourage a lot of people to go traveling, right? To go to, to take a trip. Okay, I think we're we're gonna spin the globe now. Okay, and then see and see what happens. I'm gonna spin it. Do you want to put your fingers okay. somewhere and see? You can't look at it. All right. Good luck. Ooh, wow! Look at that. I am on Venezuela. Venezuela, uh, which I haven't been to. Venezuela is a tough place to go these days. It, it but is. I've been to Colombia, which is right next door. Okay. Uh, and I think sometimes the reason you go to a place doesn't have to be a good one. And the reason I went to Colombia is that I was in New York for a while and Spirit Air had $300 tickets to Bogota from New York. That's a great reason to go. That's a great reason to go, right? <laughs> I think there's a lot of really dumb reasons that can can yield great rewards. And so I flew into Bogota. Um, I stayed in a beautiful neighborhood that it's a very mountainous city that overlooked the city, didn't cost a lot of money. They have uh, an old salt mine that they made a cathedral underground. It's are you familiar with this? I have not. No. Yeah, it's it's basically it's an underground city, including a church, um, in this old salt mine, which is amazing to see. I also went to Medellin, which some people know from its old Pablo Escobar uh, cocaine trade days, but yes. now is this very modern city. It could be like San Jose, California. <laughs> it's a very um, comfortable modern city. There's a lot of expatriate digital nomads living there because it's such a comfortable place to live. And so for the dumb reason of just saying, yeah, for $300, I could fly to St. Louis or I could go to Bogota. <laughs> my experience of Colombia flowed out of a bargain uh, and it was very memorable. Um, yeah. in, in fact, there's a place called Carne de Res, I think. It's a place, this is giant meat restaurant where you can just go and they bring plat, sword, swords full of meat that you can choose from. 
Um, and, and so like, again, food is a window into a place. Um, I love that. I mean, I'm from the American Midwest, which is very much a steak culture, but uh, who would have known Colombian meat was, was terrific as well. Yeah. I also have not been to Venezuela. It's on my list. Mm -hmm. uh, and my only experience in Colombia was as after my, I spent 12 days on the Amazon river. We ended up at, on, on the border between Peru, Brazil, and Colombia. Mm. And you could, you could cross the border uh, into these different countries. And so we did that. We were in Brazil, my buddy and I, and we hopped on a motorcycle, went around the barricade with these guys with these machine guns, you know, they didn't check anything. We rode up a little bit, had pizza in Colombia and mm -hmm. then, and then came back to, to Brazil. That's my only experience in Colombia. But I love that you bring up Colombia because it's a country that generally Americans are still afraid of going to. Hmm. There's this kind of aura of, you know, the drug cartels and what's going to happen. You're going to end up in a bathtub, you know, with like ice and they take right. your kidney to trade <laughs> and all these things. And I try right. to encourage, I've, you know, my only experience in Colombia is not, I can't speak to it. Uh, but I've had enough friends who have gone and know enough Colombians who, you know, who live there to know that it's very safe and, and beautiful country. And w when did you go? What year did you go? Probably 10 years ago. 10 years ago. Yeah. So can you vouch for the safety of Colombia? Help our listeners a absolutely. go to Colombia. Well, I think countries have reputations that are in flux. And so what made like Cambodia was seen as a really dangerous place for good reason. By the time I went in the nineties, it was a really popular place to go to. Colombia had a bad reputation in the eighties. Now it's totally safe. It's one of the, probably one of the most successful places along with Costa Rica and Latin America. Venezuela right next door is not a place to go now, but Inshallah, as they say in Arabic lands, in 20 years it will be, you know, that hopefully these places will rebound in certain ways. I know Sri Lanka was a war-torn war place, but it's a wonderful place to travel these days. And so- Yeah, this even is, Vietnam, I, when I went oh, to yeah. Vietnam in 2000, mid 2007, 2008, my parents were still like, why are you like, what's, yeah. what is it with, why are you going to Vietnam? It's dangerous. Like, no, it's, it's, it's a pretty safe country right now. So that was a long time ago. <laughs> well, it's a man bites dog world. Uh, and actually another joke is, um, uh, I think it was Ambrose Bierce told this, that war is a way of teaching Americans geography, you know? <laughs> and so of course, Vietnam is going to be sound like a dangerous place because you saw platoon and full metal jacket. <laughs> and you remember that your uncle was a veteran in that war. Well, Places change and even at the time, the headlines, the news headlines often take the worst aspect of a place. And so if you do, if you spend 20 minutes researching Colombia, you'll find all of these Americans who are over the moon to be living in Medellin. I mean, they live in other places, but Medellin is this big digital nomad hub because it's so safe and friendly and it's it's less expensive. And I think you'll find that in most most places. Like when I went to Lebanon, Lebanon is a place that rarely gets good ink friendliest people in the world. I loved Lebanon and very sophisticated, very international. It's like the Paris of the Middle East, mm -hmm. but you would never guess that unless of course you do 20 minutes of internet research and realize it's yeah. full of people who are really enjoying themselves. Or there. even better, take a trip, buy a $300 ticket to, <laughs> to go to Bogota. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, as usual, you should travel more, you should experience new things and you should be safe most of the time. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews, and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.